This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. Ready to go? <clears throat> We're going to talk about a government this morning. Um, in the United States of America, presidents come and presidents go, do they not? For now, uh, in this moment in time, the president of the United States, whoever occupies that office, is considered the leader of the free world. I think that's a fair statement uh, in, in present circumstances. Given a choice, people from all over the world uh, are attempting. They want to come here to experience life, the American dream. We are uh, a country sought out by many refugees and, and many other people. Uh, likewise, when there is a world crisis that presents itself, be it a storm or a health issue or, or whatever else, um, the United States frequently is the one to lead the charge to uh, go to the aid of wherever that uh, calamity happens to be in Haiti or, or wherever. Likewise, when there's a war to be fought, uh, the USA, again, usually leads the charge and is instrumental in the outcome of such a war. So to call the President of the United States the leader of the free world, uh, I think it fits. And I don't, I don't think he would argue with me about that. Um, that in mind, government in mind, let's pray. Father, we do lift up our president uh, this morning. We lift up uh, those who advise him. We lift up the Congress, Father, uh, those who govern our nation. We ask uh, for your wisdom with them. We ask you to give us wisdom how to deal with them and the decisions that they make. Father, we ask uh, that um, you would change hearts there that need to be changed and that you would grow and make voices loud that need to be heard. We pray for truth uh, to be present, to be obvious, and we pray for lies and deceit to be uncovered. Father, we, we trust you with all of that. We know you are sovereign over all of that. Help us to know in our hearts to live our lives as if we know you are sovereign over that. Father, because that's the only way we can live uh, in the, the place you've placed us, the times you've placed us in, and have peace about what we see going on around us. So we pray this morning as we look at Daniel that we get wisdom to view the world around us as Daniel and his companions were given wisdom about the world as it existed around them. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Daniel chapter 2 is long. And I'm going to end up reading uh, through it. We won't do it all at once. I'll, we'll do it piece by piece here. Uh, for those of you on the Friday Night Bible Study, we've already done this. Uh, just, I'll just remind you, repetition is a great teacher. Okay? Uh, I learned a lot more doing, going through this a second time. One thing you need to know about this book that makes it kind of interesting and makes it kind of atypical, it's mostly historical narrative. And then with, by that, uh, the first six chapters especially, it means it's, it really happened in real time. 
Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, 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 Nebuchadnezzar, these were real people in history. These events really happened in time, and we'll see as our story progresses, this happened, then this happened, then the count the thens as we go through this. This really happened, but it's not just historical narrative. There are four text types in this. Historical narrative is one of them. We'll also see as we go through this, we're going to run into some prose. Prose and poetry usually are a way of taking your audience and, and getting into them emotionally. We want you to feel what's happening here. So that's what we're going to do as we get to a piece of this this morning, and I'll point it out to you when we're there. We need to have an emotional connection to Daniel and to what's going on here. There's also some apocalyptic language in here, some, some stuff that doesn't make any sense in, rea in terms of reality. And the purpose of the apocalyptic uh, language is to give us some prophecy. So we're going to have some prophecy given to us along with, uh, in a strange kind of a way this morning, that is very controversial. And I'm going to not follow the mainstream of the controversy here, which is the way I usually like to do things. <laughs> Ask my wife. <clears throat> uh, one thing to, to keep in mind, though, about this, the apocalyptic prophecy that's in this book is it, uh, apocalyptic language is usually a device used to encourage people in bad circumstances. It was given to John in exile, and he wrote the book of Revelation. The people were being, church was being persecuted, John was being persecuted. It was the whole book of Revelation was given to John to, in, as a means of encouragement, not the way that we often read about it and, and see it presented to ourselves. So we're going to look at Daniel this morning, and we're going to see if we can find encouragement for Daniel in this book as we go through, through this. Like uh, a couple of months ago, I did Daniel 1 with you all. That was really a one-point sermon. And the one point in that first chapter uh, essentially was that God was in control of their lives. You might, some of you who were here might remember the story, or you might just remember it. Uh, there were three gaves in that. God gave Daniel and his companions over to uh, Nebuchadnezzar, over to the Babylonian Empire. The Babylonians conquered uh, the Israelites and took them into captivity. And so they were relocated. And not only were they relocated, they were renamed. They were all given new names. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not their original names. Daniel was renamed Belteshazzar. Belteshazzar. Um, so um, the, what happened in that first chapter, um, very briefly, just to give you context for today's chapter, is they were ordered to eat the king's food, and it was something objectionable about the king's food. They didn't want to eat it. And so they, they cut a deal with uh, the guy that was looking over them that if we don't eat this food, how about we have a test here? And if we, for a short period of time, we don't eat the king's food and we still be healthy, then you'll let us not eat the king's food because the guy that was overlooking them was afraid of getting in trouble. So they went on what we will now modernly call the Daniel diet. It was vegetables, okay? So they went on a vegetable diet. And uh, they, in fact, uh, it, it worked out good. God kept them healthy, even though they were just eating vegetables, which defies all the logic that exists in this room. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, Rick Warren from Saddleback Church made a lot of money and postured a lot with the Daniel diet. One year he wanted to lose some weight, so he called his congregation in and he said, let's all lose some weight. We're going to take the Daniel diet. And it just goes to show how people can take a scripture and twist it because Daniel and his guys on the Daniel diet gained weight. So, anyway, for, for what it's worth. Uh, the point of that first chapter basically was what did they need to know? They were in exile. What they needed to know was God placed them there. They were there by God's design, and God was going to take care of them while they were there. 
they could trust God even though they were in a, in a bad situation. That was the encouragement for them in exile in chapter 1. So now we move into uh, chapter 2. And in chapter 2, uh, we'll start off in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Now, Daniel and, and company are, are in a good place. We left them in chapter 1 in a good place. God gave them wisdom. He gave them favor. And they, although they were captives, they were put in a very prominent and, and good position. Meanwhile, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar is having nightmares. He has a nightmare here. And uh, so the leader of the free world is having bad dreams. And I want you to understand, because this is important to the context, that Nebuchadnezzar was the leader of the free world. The two major competing countries at that time in history were Babylon and Egypt. Babylon over here in the Middle East, uh, uh, Egypt down here in Egypt, fortunately, and Israel in between. And Babylon and Egypt were, were battling. They were competing with each other. Who was going to get to conquer Israel? And Babylon, in the end, had the power and the ability. They took Israel into captivity. So they really were the leading power of the free world. Some of you might even have heard of the hanging gardens of Babylon, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. This was a magnificent kingdom that Nebuchadnezzar had. It was wealthy. It was powerful. In the universe that existed at the time, it was preeminent. All right, This is where they had been taken. And this leader of the free world is having bad dreams. You ever have a bad dream? You know, sometimes maybe you eat too much pizza and you have a bad dream. That's pizza. If you weren't here last week, P-I-Z-Z-A. Okay, it's not the Tower of Pizza, P-I-Z-A. Have I got that right? Okay, thank you. All right. um, this dream that he had was very disturbing. I've had dreams like this before, and I'll bet you have too, where you wake up in a terror that what you have just dreamed could not possibly be a reality, that it's, it's, it's a terrifying sense. I've, I've had several of these in my lifetime, and you just don't close your eyes and go back to sleep and go, oh, it's just a dream. This is what he has had. Only God has given him this dream, and God has given him this dream in such a way that he knows this is not pizza. This is not just a, a bad occasion. There's a meaning behind this dream. What does this dream mean? And he can't go back to sleep. He's now losing sleep over this fact that he can't come to the bottom of what this dream really means. It's worse than that. He knows that this isn't a dream. It somehow reflects a reality. God has put in his mind that there's something here that you can't, you've got to get to the bottom of Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar is in a bad place. This is the setting for our whole scene. This king is, is tremendously disturbed. Let's, let's get in and let's feel what he is feeling here. He is in distress. Starting in chapter 2, verse 2, excuse me. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans, Chaldeans said to the king of Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream 
and its interpretations. You shall receive from you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show you the interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you're trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm if you do not make the dream known to me. There's but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. So he's got the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and the Chaldeans. Chaldeans are uh, they're Babylonians. It's just a very elite sect of, ba uh, of Babylonians. And as, this, as the book goes through here, I'm not going to refer to all of them. I'm just going to call them the wise men because the language is going to change here. We're just going to call them. This is the wise class of people, these astrologers, magicians, and whoever. These are the wise class. These are the guys who, who know what's going on. These are the guys that counsel him. Just like our president has people in the White House who are helping him uh, make decisions, um, these are the people who are helping him make decisions. These are important people. But he's given him a challenge. He's given him a challenge that is seemingly impossible. He, they want him to tell you, you tell us, King, the dream, and then we'll tell you what it means. And he says, nay, nay, I, you tell me the dream and what it means. All right? So, seems kind of impossible. How are they supposed to know his dream? They don't know his dream. This is the impossible dream that he's asking for here. So, the last thing I read to you is no one can show to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. In summary, these wise men apparently do not have audience with the gods, do they? They have a whole bunch of gods. They do not believe in the God of Israel, the God of heaven. God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They have their own gods. And their gods are, um, uh, apparently they don't have access to them. Or their gods don't routinely give them this kind of information. These are, um, gods are lacking. And he's given them an ultimatum. He says, you're going to do this or I'm going to kill you. going to burn your house, limb from limb, right? But if you do do it, then I'll give you rewards. Then we'll all live happily ever after. I want you to see the level of tension. This guy is willing to kill all of his wise men. This guy, King is in such a state, he is willing to just start all over again with all the wise men in the kingdom. Interesting question here, and we don't really have an answer to it, is why doesn't he know the dream? Or does he know, does, is this a test? Does he know the dream and he wants to test the men and, and say, you tell me what the dream is, then I'll know what your interpretation has, has wheels. Does he, is it a test? Or has he, does he not know what the dream is? Okay? Because he, he says here, I, I don't know the dream. To me, uh, the, the majority opinion on this is that he knows the dream and he just doesn't trust these guys. 
he knows them for who they really are and what they really are, and sometimes what they say works, and some, sometimes it doesn't, and so he's, he has put them to the test. And I think you can find that there in verses 7, 8, and 9. It's probably a test, although it is plausible that he doesn't know the dream. I think this happens to me all the time. You know, my wife will tell me to do something, and I'll, I'll completely forget it. And then she'll have to come and remind me, and then I remember what it was. So, so theoretically, I, I suppose that could happen, but let's just say this is a test, and he's testing these guys to see if they have any veracity or not. So what we have here, we started da with Daniel in a pretty good place because they were in chapter 1, they left and they had favor with the king and were given all this knowledge and wisdom and, and Daniel was even told, you know, I'm going to give you the ability to interpret dreams. Okay? Hmm. But that's a two-sided coin. That, uh, that good place they were left in. Let's, let's read on and find out why. Because starting in verse 12, uh, because of this, the king was angry and furious, and he commanded all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed. And they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the king the interpretation. All right. Three times these guys have been asked to tell the dream, and they can't do it, so the king now is furious. He's given them his uh, decree. He has decreed that they all be killed. All of these wise men, including Daniel, are now on death row. And they're just uh, awaiting for what they've been told to about uh, to happen. Daniel, in wisdom uh, that God has given him with prudence and discretion, he approaches this captain of the guard. Now that's a euphemism, captain of the guard. Because uh, the, the really the, the true meaning of, uh, of his name is he is lion-like. And Arioch is a word in Hebrew culture and in Hebrew literature that is a demon, a terrifying demon. So I don't know if the writer of, of Daniel really is a, giving us this guy's name or if he's describing this guy to us through the name. But this is a very, very bad person. He is, in fact, the chief butcher. I like to think of him in modern terms as the asset. If you watch Jason Bourne movies, then when the bad guys decide that somebody's <laughs> got to go, they call in the asset, and the asset goes in and takes care of business. And that's who Arioch is. He is the guy who has been sent out now to take care of business. These people are, are on death row and they're waiting to be taken out. So, so that's, that's the situation. And Daniel is asking here. Daniel and his buddies are on death row. And he's asking uh, you know, for some time. He asks for an audience with the king. He's had an audience with the king previously that went pretty well. Maybe he can have another audience with the king. But what Daniel does uh, before he gets this audience with the king in verse 17, it says, Then, there's another then, Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. That's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, for you, those of you, his companions. And he told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. 
And Daniel answered and said, and let's stop here just a, just a second to see what's happened, is Daniel realizes what's going on, and what is the first thing he elects to do? He goes to his companions and he says, guys, we've got to pray. We're in some serious uh, trouble here, and we've got to pray. So let's pray, and, and, and let's pray to the God of heaven. Not to the gods. Those gods are meaningless to them. Let's pray to the God of heaven. So they prayed to the God of heaven, and lo and behold, then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. This is the way God used to reveal himself to people. He did it through dreams and through visions, and, and this was the time. You know, the Holy Spirit wasn't there yet. The gospel wasn't there yet. The scriptures weren't there yet. God spoke to men in these ways. So God has revealed now the dream and its interpretation to Daniel. How does Daniel react to that? We switch here to prose. We want to be drawn in by what Daniel has offered us here, what these words are in these verses 20 through 23 here. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. Let me read that again. He changes times and seasons, and he removes kings and sets up kings. God has revealed to Daniel that I set up kings and take them down. I set the seasons of the earth. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. God has given me wisdom and knowledge and understanding here. This is not mine. This is from God. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what's in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might. You have given me the answer to the dream. The meaning of the dream and its interpretation. You gave that. You revealed that to me. I'm on death row and now I have something to go to the king with. I give thanks and praise and have now you have made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. In a dream, Daniel has been given from the God of heaven what the gods of Babylon could not give to the wise men of Babylon. The God of heaven is not the same as the gods of the Babylon. And what a coincidence. He's going to get to interpret a dream. And in chapter 1, God gave him the ability to interpret dreams. What luck. What do the people in exile need to know? What do Daniel and his friends, what encouragement do they need? And how will God deliver them what they need to know as a form of encouragement? Well, there's a lot of this. we started, Daniel and his buddy started in a good place. Now there's all kinds of tension, and the tension is building and building, and it's going to come to a climax. It's going to come to a head here in the next couple of verses because Daniel will now go before the king, and let's see what happens. Verse 24, Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king an interpretation. Then Arioch, the asset, brought in Daniel before the king. And in haste he said to him, Well, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. He's taking credit for what God has done and revealed to Daniel. Kind of shows you what this guy's made of as if we didn't already know. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, 
Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? And Daniel answered the king and said, No, wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery of the king, what the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Latter days, friends. Prophecy is coming up. We're going to let Nebuchadnezzar know. We're going to give him something prophetic here. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this prophecy. And he who reveals mystery made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the other living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. Daniel is not going to take credit for any of this. The king wants to give Daniel credit, and Daniel is saying, It's not me. I don't have any more insight than any other man. It's the God of heaven who has given you this. Okay? Is it God's intention here to make Nebuchadnezzar wise? Is that what's going on in this whole thing? When, when Nebuchadnezzar knows his dream, is that God's way of dealing with this power and this authority? The, the, the leader of, of the, I don't want to say the free world, but the leader of the world at the moment? Or is this about Daniel? Is God doing something for Daniel? Because apocalyptic language is getting ready to come up, you guys. And that's encouragement for those in affliction. And I think the encouragement here, if I can steer you a little bit, so you, you understand this as we proceed in the right direction, that this is for Daniel. This is not for Nebuchadnezzar's benefit. God is going to use Daniel here because God wants to console. He wants to encourage Daniel. Let's see what he has in this for Daniel. 31, here's the dream. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. The image, mighty and exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, and its chest, arms of silver, its middle and thighs, bronze, and its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out, not by human hands, and it struck the image on its feet in iron, clay, and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away, so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain filled the earth. I want you to do something. I mean, if you've got your Bible, just cross out the word there broke, where it says uh, iron and clay and broke them in pieces. And then further on it says all together and broke them in pieces. Because if you don't mind writing in your Bible, I'd much rather you, you see there instead of broke, crushed. Okay? Like we could just as easily have this word crushed. And crush is a helpful word in our text. So the rock comes along and it crushes them crushes all of them. Go ahead and put the PowerPoint up for me there, uh, Caleb. There you go. That's a uh, modern uh, depiction of the image, okay? And if you want to have some fun, uh, go on Google and Google Daniel chapter 2's image and see what you come up with. All right? I had to find one that had no words on it, okay? Uh, you can see there, though, there's gold at the top, silver going down, bronze, and then uh, we get to the legs and the feet, you see the clay and the iron. 
So if you want to sketch that out on your little notepad there, and you can go ahead and put in gold, silver, bronze, uh, clay, and iron if you want to. Okay? Most of them have uh, additional stuff on the pictures, though. Most of them will say for the gold, it'll have up there uh, Babylon. And then for the silver, it'll, it'll say um, Persia. We get to the bronze, it'll say Greece. And then we get down to the legs and the feet, it'll say Rome. Okay? We don't need that. And you'll see why as we go here. What I, what I want you to see here, though, is the head is gold, silver. There is a decreasing value to whatever these things are uh, symbolic of. They decrease in value, all right? And uh, at some point in time, a rock, a rock not cut from human hands, crushes them, breaks them to pieces. If you've got NASB, you get the right word, crushes them, okay? So they get crushed by the rock. And I don't know about you, that clears everything up for me just fine. I now know what Daniel 2 is all about, and I'm sure Nebuchadnezzar is impressed. As a matter of fact, what has just happened is Daniel has created great ethos, great gravitas for, for himself. He has veracity now. He has ethos. The king now will know that the God of heaven has, in fact, revealed the dream to him. So what comes next in this interpretation must be the real deal. So let's read on and let's see if we can figure out, this is apocalyptic, it's futuristic, it's whatever. Let's see if we can figure out what the symbols are. This was the dream, starting in verse 36. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, of whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given whatever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of heaven making, you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. So our text really does tell us, we could put, we could put leave, leave the PowerPoint up there for just a bit more. Uh, we really could say gold, silver, bronze, clay, iron, and we could put Babylon up there too because that's in our text, isn't it? And we, we wouldn't be going wrong with that. So we, we could leave that up there. And what has he just said? What has Daniel just said as he interprets the dream? He has told King Nebuchadnezzar what he just pr praised God for in his prose, that you're the king, God appointed you. He made you the ruler of the world at this, point, uh, at this point in time. The birds of the heaven, the children of man, the fields, everything. You rule over it all. You're the man. God of heaven has done this for you. Verse 37, O king, the king of heaven, the God of heaven has done this for you. We've got some uh, witnessing going on here. This is more than just flattery. Let's keep going. Another kingdom, okay, let me back up here. You, O king, are the kings to God, the power and the glory, and the whatever. You are the head of gold. Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks the pieces and shatters all things, and like iron that crushes, oh, I like that word, crushes it shall break and crush all these. 
And as you saw the feet and the toes, partly the potter's clay and partly the iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. We're talking about the fourth kingdom here now will be a divided kingdom. And some of the furnace of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partially iron and partially clay, so the kingdom shall be partially strong and partially brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with the soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together as just as iron does not mix. And so we take all this narrative right here and we say, well, who could this be? Well, this must be Persia and this must be uh, uh, Alexander the Great in Greece and this must be Rome because Rome was a divided kingdom and we had marriage things. And all. So we try to speculate and we try to ask what this means. And so if you do that, you're, you're lucky because you could go to the bookstore and there's 87 books there for you in one section. And there's another 487 in the next section. And they'll tell you what to believe about all this stuff. And they'll tell you about Persia and why this has to be Rome and why this has to be that. And you can spend all your time there and completely miss the point of this whole passage. All right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to suggest here to this, this morning that we take, you ready? another way. <laughs> I'm going to lead us to another way to look at this. Because what has happened here, what he has, has just told him, the king, is you are the head. You are the gold. The gold represents you. But there's an inferior kingdom that's going to defeat you. And then there's going to be another inferior kingdom that's going to defeat them. And then there's going to be a fourth, even more inferior kingdom that's going to be, at the end of the day, ahead. What are we supposed to learn here? Are we supposed to learn something about Persia and Greece and Rome? Or are we supposed to learn something about the kingdoms of the earth? The kingdoms of the earth have a descending order in value and in placement. And I think that's what's in, what's in view here. And, it, and could this be Persia and Rome and Greece? Perhaps. And they would fit. But so might some other kingdoms of the earth be thrown in here. And all the arguments that exist of when this happened and when this started and when this didn't, and we try to weave together a fantastic story that's given to us apocalyptically, which means we can't give this to you in literal time, whatever. We're giving you big ideas here, and that's what our big ideas are. And in the end of the day, what happens? In the end of the day, I'm now up to verse 44. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. And nor shall the kingdom he be left to another people. It shall break, excuse me, crush. It shall crush all those people, kingdoms, and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from the mountain by no human hand, and that broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold, the great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, its interpretation is sure. Take this to the bank, Nebuchadnezzar. It's certain and it's sure. What I'm saying here is right on. I've given him the interpretation. How, how are we going to deal with this? There's a stone in the mix here, too. You can take that down now. So there's a great, a great deal said about this stone. It said early on that a stone not from human hands. And then this, this stone or this rock, as it goes back and forth, it is the thing that crushes at the end of the day. The rock is what causes this all to come to fruition and to truth. All right? Go back a page. I think I turned two pages there. Okay. 
there is a rock in the picture, and the rock is what destroys the kingdom. All right? Let me, let me, let me finish this up here. Go back just a second. Let me finish up. Then King, King Nebuchadnezzar, okay, so he gives him the interpretation, tells him the whole thing, and, and Daniel says, take this to the bank. Verse 44. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and an incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries. For you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and a great many gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief perfect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon, and Daniel remained at the king's court. True to all historical narrative, or to most historical narrative with a plot line, we had a good place, we had a lot of tension, it came to a climax, we had resolution, and now we're all in a good place again, aren't we? So we've, I've finished uh, the narrative here, and so I ask you the question, did Nebuchadnezzar get saved here? Is he a believer now? I don't believe so because he says that uh, the God of heaven is a God of gods. I don't think that's right. There's only one God. He's Lord of the kings. He's not Lord of the kings. He hasn't, hasn't been the Lord of the kings, all right? He does reveal mysteries. He, Nebuchadnezzar does not have this right. As a matter of fact, he starts off here wanting to give, uh, pay homage to Daniel. And he gives Daniel an offering, an incense. So Nebuchadnezzar, let's keep him, as we proceed through Daniel, let's keep him in his right place, okay? He's a mess. But the God of heaven gives those in exile what they need to know. In chapter 1, he let them know that while they were in exile, he was with them. The Daniel diet would be good for them. And he gave them favor and the ability to, to understand dreams he gave to Daniel. In chapter 2, the God of heaven... We has revealed to us now, Daniel, you're an exercise. Here's what Daniel needs to know about his circumstances with Babylon, that the God of heaven has an eternal kingdom. That unlike Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, Germany, and that's United States of America, will not be destroyed in the due course of human history. Those kingdoms will not last. That's what Daniel needed to know. And that's what you and I need to know, too, that the kingdom, the time where God has placed us will not last. This isn't about specific kingdoms, and we don't have to read books and, and, and wade through all that nonsense. All this is telling us is that all the kingdom of earth, all the kingdoms of earth are going to fail. What Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego needed to know was that while they found themselves captives in exile in the greatest country on earth, that kingdom, Babylon, would be destroyed, as would the successive kingdoms that were to follow. What those in exile need to know is that there's only one kingdom that's eternal, and that is the kingdom of the God of heaven. Now let's touch on a few more bases before we end this up here. There's a rock that sees to it that those kingdoms fail. Uh, it's a rock not cut from human hands. 
what that is telling us is that this rock is the work of God. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. There was a virgin birth that produced this rock. It was not cut from human hands. It was cut from the mountain. And in Scripture, if we read Old Testament and we go through Exodus especially, we know that the mountain is always a symbol for the mountain of God. This rock was cut from the mountain of God. Caleb, Isaiah 8, 14. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Psalm 118. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. 1 Peter chapter 2. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Matthew 21. Jesus said to them, Have you never read the Scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's a marvelous in our eyes. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Chapter Exodus chapter 17. Behold, I stand before you. This is God talking to Moses. In the desert. For behold, I stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. There's a rock there, and I'm going to hit a rock, and they're going to get water. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the first four verses. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. The rock was Christ. Throughout Scripture, the mountain is the mountain of God. Throughout Scripture, the stone, the rock, is Jesus Christ. It's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. This rock that destroys the kingdoms and will become, fill the whole earth, is Jesus Christ. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity, God is giving Satan the curse. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise, cross it out, crush your head, and you shall bruise his feet. That's a proper translation, that's an adequate translation. Satan's head will be crushed by the rock. Satan's head was crushed by the rock on the cross. Satan's kingdom has fallen. Already not yet. But we know the end of the story, do we not? Daniel and friends only knew that the kingdom they were in was not going to be a lasting kingdom. That was all they needed to know. You and I know that Babylon and succeeding kingdoms were physical representations in the Old Testament of the evil kingdoms of earth led by the powers of Satan that were crushed, defeated by Jesus Christ on the cross. 1 Peter chapter 1 tells us, reminds us, friends, that we are sojourners. We are aliens on this planet. This is not our world. We have been replaced here. 
We serve under a, a king on this earth or kings on this earth. But they are not our king. Our president is not our king. Our country is not our king. We are in exile, not in Shinar, but in the United States of America. We are sojourners, temporary sojourning in a kingdom. All right? What happens when, when kings want to do, to take you? They replace you, they relocate you, they rename you, they want to reprogram you. Daniel and his friends were sent to the University of Babylon and they tried to reprogram them. They did their best to reprogram into that Babylonian culture, but Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to be reprogrammed. We live in a kingdom that is desperately, with all its might and strength, trying to reprogram every person in this room. We have a school system trying to reprogram every kid in this room. We have parents that idly sit by and let it happen. We watch things on our TV. We read things in our book. And idly, we watch the United States of America being reprogrammed. Not that the United States of America was ever a good place or going to be a good place anyways. It's just another kingdom in the succession of kingdoms. You notice the thing that's, that's really cool. We think we're the most powerful nation that ever was. This book tells me that in the descending order of, of value, we're at right now, friends, we sit at the bottom of the heap. This country will not last. This kingdom is not our home. I'll twist the words of Winston Churchill just a little bit here. The United States is the worst country in the world, except for the rest of them. Okay? <laughs> we are contending to be, to win that contest, to be the worst kingdom in the world. You mentioned abortion, gender. I mean, I, I, the list goes on in our own generation here of the reprogramming going on in this thing. We are a bankrupt, corrupt kingdom in the order of the kingdoms of the earth. This is not about Daniel. God, in chapter 1, was the God of circumstances. He's, he, let's go back to chapter 1. My circumstances, your circumstances, we live in, 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 in our president is the leader of the free world. That's where, the, that's where we have been relocated. That's just where we live. God is in control, but He has given us a church. He has given us freedom of speech. He, at this moment in time, He's given me the ability to stand up here and to preach the Word of God to you as Grant does every Sunday. We have opportunity here as Daniel. We have, you're getting a Daniel diet right here, if you want to think about it that way. What we need to know, though, in chapter 2, is God just didn't, isn't the God of your circumstances and mine, where we live, where we breathe, how, how, what our culture is going on around us, who our president is. God is the God of history. Every single kingdom that ever was and ever will be is by his design and appointment. And what you and I need to know is all those kingdoms will fall until the rock, the kingdom of God, is established in a new heaven and a new earth. And that's our hope in the kingdom that we live in. A great God has made this, this known to me this morning. And the dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. What I'm telling you this morning is certain, and it is sure. Lord, that's our context. That's our life. The book of Daniel telling us in exile what we need to know. All we need to know, you are the king of history. Your history will be played out as you've written it before the foundations of the earth. Thank you for our place in it. 
Show us our place in it. Remind us of our place in it. Help us to live with the knowledge of our place in it in right ways. Make us a voice of truth in a world of lies. In Jesus' name, amen.